We all know the benefits of being flexible. Being able to pivot and do something in a new way or travel in a different direction is a necessity for all of life's curveballs wherever we find ourselves. Oftentimes, however, our desire to be flexible competes with our own needs and we put off what is good for us. It's not uncommon for this behavior to cause more problems further down the line, either for us, for others, or both, when a change becomes absolutely necessary. In today's episode, we'll discuss how our culture values flexibility, what happens when flexibility is taken to the extreme, and the need to advocate for and take care of ourselves. Welcome to another episode of Doorward Thinking. Welcome to another episode of Doorward Thinking. I'm your host, Nate LeBlanc, and we're back seeking better ways to think about life and work. Each week, we will open a new door in our search for clarity as we consider the intersections of art, science, and the human spirit. Today, we're taking Doorward Thinking on the road. We're on Zoom. I'm in St. Louis, but joining me today from the first city to be lit by electricity, Cleveland, Ohio, is sweet potato advocate, Daniel Jacob Eisen, AKA Jake. Welcome to the show, Jake. I fly it up, bro. Flew, uh, flew out to Cleveland. Absolutely, little 40th wedding anniversary for my parents this weekend. So, great opportunity. Congratulations to them on 40 happy years. What's the weather like over there? Uh, just a slight wisp of snow in the air. Chilly. Your classic Cleveland gray sky. And also with us today, Cleveland resident. Our first guest to the podcast, friend of the show and self-proclaimed longtime listener, Nick Eberhardt. Welcome to the show, Nick. Uh, Nate, thank you so much. It's such a pleasure and joy to be able to be here. Truly quite an honor. So you two met in college? It was my senior year. Yeah, yeah. And then it was my sophomore year. Wow. And what brought you two together? Well, Nick was RA and RA. Uh, the next year, I became an RA as well, and he was actually assigned uh, to mentor me to help me to be able to become a good RA. I don't think we need to get hung up in the details of what this whole mentor-mentee relationship is. Um, it was I that was designated as the mentee, Dan as the mentor, as he truly is and was the face of Cleveland State University during his senior year. This is a serious podcast. You want me to get Jen on the call? Call her up. Let's see, I just, this is, for once and for all, let's get this clear for the record, please. Your call has been forwarded to an automatic voice message. Well, I mean, we're live, so what can we expect? I literally have official documentation. I don't know why we have to make this a thing every time. Uh, so Dan and I have known each other for about 10 years now. Um, it's true I was an RA first, Dan became an RA second, but the fact of the matter is Dan was already such a face of the university and all the things that he was involved with um, and beloved truly by so many people that as he came out of being an RA, so many people already knew who he was, residents included, and he didn't even live on campus at the time. So the whole mentor-mentee relationship through an RA perspective, I don't think really matters. I think what matters is the fact that Dan has truly been a mentor and an inspiration to me over these past 10 years or so, truly in, in life not just being an RA, but in life. Um, 
he's just somebody that I admire tremendously. I look up to a whole great deal. Is an inspiration for so many people. And I think I can attest to the fact that not only is he home for his parents' 40th wedding anniversary, which speaks volumes of who he is, who he is as an individual, but the fact that he's having his annual Christmas party at the house as well. Um, and how many people are coming to this party is truly going to be amazing from all over the city and beyond to get a glimpse of our leader, Dan. Um, we've, For example, we've had somebody that was just married yesterday that is pretty much expected to be here tonight for the party. So people will only do this for Dan. And I truly speak honestly in saying that um, people just love to see him, hear him, learn from him, grow alongside him. Um, and he's been in the best man in my wedding as I've been married for three years now to Megan. Um, and he's been just such a blessing to our marriage and our lives as well that uh, I would be remiss to say anything less than what I said now. So. Right, Thank you, just, Dan. We can go ahead and edit all of that out, Nate. Uh, I think the reality is, if I taught him anything, it was what not to do in life. Well, I'm really glad that you are able to take the time with everything going on, your parents' wedding anniversary, this Christmas party, to uh, get this recording time with, with, with us and Nick today. So I know we try to do it every week, so take a step back and think about life. So, Nick... In your free time when you weren't arguing with Dan, who was the mentor and who was the mentee, what did you decide to do in college? Believe it or not, Nate, that took up a lot of my time. But in the few moments of free time, I was also involved in other activities, probably through the inspiration of Dan as well. Um, but I worked at the rec center. I was a part of our student government and involved there. I worked as a tour guide in the admissions office and then at the front desk. And then not to mention just being involved in my profession, going into physical therapy as well with my classmates and the studies, of course, that comes with college, doesn't it? Usually, hopefully. <laughs> what inspired you to go into a career in physical therapy? You know, really, I think the first thing was that I was exposed to physical therapy, suffering from an injury of my own playing basketball. Going through that allowed me to be first exposed to what physical therapy was in the first place and how they were able to get me back to sport. I appreciate it greatly. I always enjoyed working and helping people in some sort of fashion, but when I was going to ninth grade, I wasn't sure what that would look like. Um, so just being able to be on my feet, talk with people, help people get back to doing what they love to do through movement and through exercise and seeing what physical therapy could do for me as well. I know that may sound as cliche as it comes, but that's how I was exposed and that's how I fell in love with it. Um, and that's how I decided I wanted to pursue it ever since you know ninth grade and I never looked back then. You always have careers where you help people. You can't help everybody, but certainly try, Dan, but I learned it from you. Nope, not from me. <laughs> Oh, physical therapy is really awesome. I've gone several times for a knee injury that I got ice skating that required surgery. The therapy was tough, but with the help of a good therapist, I was able to get my mobility back and can run and jump and hike and do things I wasn't able to do after the injury. So that's great to hear. Well, I'm sure as a model patient that you were ever so compliant with your home exercise program and faithful in doing so, I trust. I haven't learned from Dan how not to do everything wrong yet, but I wasn't always the best patient. <laughs> so now that you've graduated and you've been in the field a while, what is it that you're doing? Sure, yeah. So I've graduated in the end of 2017 from Cleveland State, and I've been working um, in a large-based hospital system in the Cleveland area since roughly 2018, so a little over three years now. I work in an inpatient facility, so I work actually in the hospital setting greater than a year now in the 
neurological floors. So I see a lot of patients that are post-stroke, different kinds of brain surgeries, tumors, spinal cord, Parkinson's, multiple sclerosis, a plethora of other things that patients come to get care for. So I'll see those people to help rehabilitate them and then get them started on their their journey to recovery. Um, And here's the money question. After your time in the industry and going through the education and everything like that, would you go into physical therapy again, knowing what you know now? I would. I really would. Um, I think it's it's a long career of schooling. So it's four years of undergraduate school and then three years of graduate school. So it's a doctoring level profession at this point. It's been so for about a little over 10 years now. Um, so it does incur a lot of debt. And we're not here to talk about the debt to payment ratio, but I would. As a, the career as a whole, I really enjoy, you know, in, in many ways, everything that I hoped it it would be. I mean, there are so many things that I would change and which were, you know, different and things I didn't understand as a freshman going to ninth grade. As a whole, I really do enjoy what I do day in and day out. As tiring and stressful sometimes as it can be working in healthcare, I'm happy to do it. What is it with those tiring, stressful moments that make the career worthwhile? Being able to take care of the patients, right? So the patients that I see are freshly in the hospital. They've most likely suffered some kind of traumatic, life-altering event in their life that just think of stroke, for example, you know, you have somebody that might've been very active, very independent, exercising daily, taking care of their family, working. And all of a sudden they have this traumatic stroke that has shifted their course of life greatly. And they don't know what to do. And they don't know what their futures may look like and what that may look like for their family and what that can entail. So being able to offer a sense of hope and empowerment in these individuals through rehabilitation and what this journey may look like, even though it's not going to be easy, is really rewarding, especially in those early stages and how important it is for neuro rehab, but also being able to see these patients at such a critical point in their life and get them started on their journey of rehab and recovery and reach these tremendous milestones that could be anywhere from sitting at the edge of the bed to progressing to the point of being able to maybe complete a stand with menacist or take those first initial steps or walk with some kind of device or equipment that they basically have to relearn how to walk again. And as life-shattering as that can be, it's also been wonderful to instill the amount of hope into them and see them make those gains. And hopefully they will do that over the next six months to a year and far beyond. I know as a former patient and as somebody who's spent time working in the medical field and going to school, it's absolutely needed and very much appreciated. So thank you for everything that you do. Thank you, Nate. One of the things that my time going to physical therapy taught me was that an injury that wasn't taken care of for a while can cause subsequent secondary injuries or other physical problems. For instance, I initially hurt my knee probably a couple of years before my ice skating injury and then re-hurt it that time around. After the surgery, when I started going to therapy, I was told that my hamstrings were extremely tight that my pelvis was shifted. And going through those couple of months, I actually gained almost an inch of height with how everything was contracted and over accommodating for the injury. Can you elaborate on a little bit of the biomechanics that goes into that accommodation? Oh, sure. I mean, I I suppose I'm not here to give you a true lesson on, on physical therapy and how the body, the body works. And there are many things that I still don't understand about it. It's a very complex system that we have, but also wonderfully made, right? So everything is a chain, 
right? Your, your back affects how your hip moves, your hip affects how your knee moves and so on, you know, up and down and down the chain. So, you know, how we lift something, how we move, how we lift weights, how we exercise, all of that is so closely related to how well you take care of yourself in terms of your back, in terms of your hip and your knee. And if something's not working well in one joint, it may not be necessarily that joint that's causing the problem. It may be something that's lower above the kinetic chain that we have to take notice of. So, you know, whether it's post-injury, whether it's pre-injury, whether it's just preventative wellness checks that sometimes therapists can often provide for their patients too, um, those can also be critical to help prevent injuries rather than rehabbing an injury. But yeah, if you are having something that may not be optimally functioning, that can, you know, be a recipe for an injury down, down the line, certainly. For somebody who hasn't gone through that experience, I have an example that might help illustrate what it's like. I'm sure everybody's driven down the road and gotten to a point where there's a lane closed for road work. There's a concept called the zipper merge where people are supposed to move forward as far as they can in both lanes and then alternate who goes forward. So from the left lane first, then the right lane, and it creates this chain in the system that helps everybody to move along and get past the work. But oftentimes what happens is this scenario. We see the lights up ahead saying we need to merge into one lane and people start merging well before the actual road work. What ends up happening is you have a lot of people trying to get into one lane very early on at different points. It's confusing. And then as you move back past, since you're not filling up the second lane, you have the potential to back up into an intersection. And that causes a lot of problems for many motorists. A lot of people do it thinking that they're trying to be polite, trying to accommodate what's going on in the traffic but it really ends up causing a further problem. Another way that this happens, and is something that we're seeing quite a bit right now, is the phenomenon of presenteeism. Presenteeism is what happens when you go into work when you're sick or you're injured. An article by Business News Daily reported some statistics from Office Pulse that said that of those who go to work, 38% go to work when they're injured or sick because they don't want to fall behind. 30% don't want to sacrifice their PTO, and 10% say that their bosses expect them to work through their illness or through their injury. You might ask, okay, so maybe they're a little bit sick, they have the sniffles or a minor injury. What's the problem with that? Well, there's a big problem. Absenteeism or staying home from work when you're sick or you're injured cost the American economy about $15 billion annually, whereas presenteeism costs 10 times as much. That's $150 billion lost every year because people are going into work injured or sick. Research has shown that if you go into work sick, it's like going into work after having several drinks of alcohol or that you're going into work after an all-nighter. That really decreases somebody's productivity Additionally, if they continue working, it's a lot easier for them to get burnt out, to become even more sick to the point where they need to take several days. In the case of being injured, a small injury that somebody can fight through can become, like you said, Nick, a chronic injury, overuse injury, 
requiring things like more time off, rest, surgery, etc. So paradoxically, presenteeism or going into work when you're sick or you're injured causes a net loss in revenue. And it's only getting worse. Earlier this year, Bloomberg said that people are taking fewer sick days because they're working from home. With so many people working remotely, there isn't the same deterrent to stay home and make sure that your coworkers aren't getting sick or catching the bug. So a lot of people are staying home and they're working through illness. The numbers aren't quite out yet, but projections show that it will cost more than the usual $150 billion that's lost every year. Going through all the statistics, what stands out most to me is the 10 times cost of presenteeism versus taking the sick day. So what do you think is prompting people to work instead of taking care of themselves? Why do we place this emphasis on going in and being productive even when we're not well? I mean, personally, Nate, I think part of it is the expectation society places on us as individuals to work and to work hard and to work hard at all costs. I think it can be really hard to make that decision to take a personal day. And I don't mean necessarily just truly being sick. Um, Even when you're distressed and you're tired and you want a mental health day or to take a day off, I think we as individuals, no matter the setting that you work in, just have a hard time doing that and saying to ourselves that that's okay. And we feel a lot of guilt or shame that's associated with taking a day that for any other reason other than being really ill or just, you know, being actually away on a vacation has made it challenging to do. And I think that's the burden that society holds us to. I think it can be the burden of expectations of the work environment we might be placed in and the productivity and the work expectations that we may have. And so it leads to this sense of, of burnout and fatigue and exhaustion that you constantly feel like you're playing catch up with and running yourself into maybe further illness or sickness or, or injury. I think it's kind of like a domino effect. But where does that come from? Uh, I think a lot of people express those kinds of thoughts or or feel that kind of way about this sort of uh, unspoken expectation. The question is, you know, you know, in a sense, like you know, we're we're society, right? You know, we all collectively have created this kind of hierarchy of values that that puts presenteeism above an absenteeism. I think this is something that I actually learned during my first job. I worked at a Boy Scout camp over the summer, and it was a tremendous opportunity. I learned a lot, but there was a need for staff to be trained in multiple disciplines so that we could accommodate the wants of the campers. I was hired to do ecology and conservation, work at a nature center. I was really pumped about that. I get to camp, and the first day I'm told that For the first week, I'm going to need to function as a lifeguard. So I went to the pool, passed my lifeguard training. Then during that first full week of campers, went to the lake while trying to figure out everything that I needed to do for my role in the nature center. As I continued and grew in that job and started to gain some more leadership opportunities, eventually placed in management, I saw that our expectation was to give the campers everything that they asked for. And in the process, that stretched a lot of staff thin. These are 15, 16, 17-year-old boys and girls who are going out and seeing this is how work is done. So I think a lot of people actually learn it from the workplace, where they say, this is how we do it, and this is the expectation. 
Well, as you talk about this, Nate, I can't help but think about the skilled trades who don't have this problem. So maybe we can kind of look at the opposite here for a second to help us to piece apart what's going on uh, in the over-accommodation culture. So I think as a rule, the skilled trades, one, I think they, they, they have a solid knowledge of what they offer. And we can get into that in a second, like where that comes from. They know their value. They, I would say in general, are not falling into this kind of over-accommodation you know, they're not getting over, you know, in the lane too soon. They are saying, no, here's my capacity, right? I'm scheduling three weeks out. I, I'm i totally booked for the year. That's going to have to wait. You know, you have roofing work, you have masonry work, you have outside painting, you know, whatever, right? I'm, I'm totally booked till winter. And so if you want to do anything, that's going to have to happen in the spring. And, and, and we see this across the skilled trades that, you know, that we're working with in real estate here, they have the ability to say no, to say, I can't do that, right? And I think that comes from some extent the a shortage of skilled trades. And you know, there's a lot of you know studies on this, you know, kind of you know why a lot of them are retiring, people aren't going to the skilled trades, we can get into that maybe some other time. But because of that, they kind of have a sense of, hey, take it or leave it, right? I can't do this today. That's it. You know, maybe I can't do it because I'm hurt. And so I'm going to have to do that next week. I'm going to have to do that tomorrow. Is that because they're their own boss? I don't think it's just because they're their own boss. That's probably definitely a big part of it, though. It's uh, Tom and Locus to control it. They can decide. Sure. I mean, if you look at it from my perspective, I don't have that autonomy or that locus of control to just schedule out patients when I want to see them, per se, or... I mean, I'm in the hospital system, so I really go to them. And when they're there, they're there. And I need to be there as well. And I have productivity expectations. And you only get so many what they call PTO days per year. And you have to get approved for those days. And there's no delineation away from separating between PTO versus sick versus mental health days. It's all lumped in as one ordeal. And you accrue so much throughout the year. And you can only take those days when you get approved for them based on how many other therapists are off as well. And it's a system tied to it. So... You know, we don't always have the luxury of being able to take off when you need to or want to take off. Or if you do, even if it could be an emergency, there's a, in a way, a punitive point system tied to it where, you know, you get X amount of number of points through a rolling calendar year, you know, you face or can face corrective action for such. I mean, there are supervisors that will work with you and things like that, of course, but it's a big system. And it's a way, of course, for people to not abuse the system, but it puts people at a disadvantage or is unfortunate for those that really need to to take that time and can't for various reasons. Um, It's built on on trust between the employer and the employee. And, you know, how that trust is earned can be set for a different discussion as well. But Dan's brought up a great point to me before, right, that I think you could probably speak to about trust between the employer and the employee and how that's earned and how that's gained. Um, Yeah. I I think trust is, is best when it's given. If that then trust is abused, that's sort of the, that's when the lines crossed. Right. But, but I I think when you put people in a position where, you know, they have to try and earn trust or earn flexibility, it's hard uh, to create that mutual respect. Nick, one thing that you mentioned was your productivity hours and you go in and you see the patients that you're assigned that day. Yeah. 
you know, I'll have, I'll have patients that I kind of create a schedule for as well. I have that autonomy being in the hospital. So, but still there are certain number of patients that need to be seen and, you know, when and how often, and uh, it revolves around that. So in a day, no matter how the day goes, there are still productivity expectations that need to be met and are, you know, reviewed upon and through performance reviews throughout the month and throughout the year and different benefits and things are tied and associated to that, of course. So yeah, that is there just like many, I'm sure employers have productivity standards and expectations in a way that things have to be measured and maintained to make sure the work is getting done and things are getting taken care of. Of course, that has its place, no doubt, but it can also be quite stressful and lead to, to burnout at times. And what about for the patient? Are there times where because of productivity, you can't spend as much time with the patient as they might need in that moment? where you, a professional who's gone through years of study and has experience, could say a patient would benefit from a little bit extra attention on a specific day? Oh, sure. I mean, depending on how well staffing could be for that day or that floor, or that team that you work on, that may kind of in a way dictate how long you get to spend with that patient because so many patients need or expect it to be seen or if you're not able to spend that time that you can with the patients that need need time spent with. Um, I've been fortunate enough being in the hospital, I have a little bit more flexibility with that, but I know speaking for like outpatient therapists, as my wife is one as well, their hands are tied to an extent of, you know, they get X amount of slots to see their patients, um, say it's 45 minutes. And, you know, if that patient comes in late or they maybe can't be as productive for that patient or based on the productivity measurements or standards because, you know, so only X amount of charges can be spent. It makes it quite challenging and just kind of either backs up the day for the patients or the therapists. And yeah, patients aren't just seen for as long as they need to be seen for a lot of different reasons. So it sounds to me like there's a little bit of compounding that could be going on. Not only the patient and their body, like my situation where I had multiple accommodations that needed to be corrected, but there's also accommodations that need to be made within your profession that's preventing somebody who had a situation like me from maybe getting the care that they need in that moment. Absolutely. I think what makes it difficult is when you have to accommodate to certain insurances as well that can often dictate your plan of cares um, on the length you see a patient. So for example, there's several insurances out there that will say that basically how long and when the therapist is supposed to and should see that patient, right? That insurance company is basically working with the physician. Um, They're creating the plan of care together and then it gets messaged down to the therapist and the therapist has to accommodate for basically the plan of care that they're given. And if that plan of care is kind of met outside the realm of what was expected, then things may not be covered. So if it comes down saying that a patient needs to be seen twice a week for six weeks and that's what the therapist needs to follow, And there's been examples where a patient can only come maybe one time a week because they have to work and they can't get that many days off. They necessarily have to, the therapist has to file for an extension and doesn't always get approved by the insurance company because they did not or were not compliant with that plan of care that the physician and the insurance company agreed upon together, even though the therapist is the one providing the care for that patient, which is quite challenging. Nick, what you're describing is making me think of that zipper merge example that Nate was telling us about, sort of the the chain reaction 
when something doesn't happen the way it's supposed to, and then we try to accommodate that, ends up causing more problems in the traffic backing up at some other intersection. Now that intersection's backing up or, or what have you. And this kind of kind of compounding chain reaction, this is this is a result of many, many things kind of coming together all at once, right? You need to have this patient in the room at the moment that they were scheduled where you and you being there as well, right? Having the room set up, all these different things to be able to you know, take care of the patient right at that time. And and I think we see this too in our business when when you have so many different People trying to coordinate services, other real estate professionals, the skilled trades, um, tenants, landlords, etc. And a lot of times what seems to be the issue is people are using even like different systems, right? And the systems aren't integrating, the systems aren't coordinating with each other, which obviously the, the, these are at the service of the people being in coordination with each other. And it's obviously a difficult thing. And you know, even like your large hospitals system is is trying to figure out ways how to how to make that work. But it definitely seems to be this sort of chain reaction compounding effect really seems to be what's getting into causing this over-accommodation culture that we've been discussing. Right. And in many ways, I think it creates a lot of inefficiencies as well. Inefficiencies for delayed care for the patient, for frustration for the therapist relating to maybe burnout and then maybe needing a mental health day or taking time away from work because of the inefficiencies that the healthcare can bring. You know, you guys talk all the time about being adaptable and flexible. And I think no matter what industry or profession that you're in, especially with this pandemic, we've all learned what it means to be in a fluid environment and to be able to adapt to change and they have to be flexible. And as you all figure out whether that's how to care for patients and what to wear, as far as the PPE goes in a hospital to working from home and just the, the challenges that that can present. Yeah. You know, the landlords trying to take care of tense issues and tense getting frustrated and, you know, and how do you even go into that space right now? How do you make sure that people get those issues taken care of? Well, yeah, it's like going back to the zipper merge example. We have the system, we see the traffic light or the, the cones up ahead that indicate there's a need to move over. And we do that right away, trying to fit into the system and go with the flow. But if these systems are not set up and not optimized for people to get their actual work done and to do what's really best for people, then that can cause a lot of issues with productivity and really missing the mark on how we best take care of ourselves and human-centered work. Oh, and this is the mark in terms of like everybody wanting the same thing. Everybody wants to get to that destination as soon as they can, right? And just like in the hospital system, patient providers, they all want to get that patient to that milestone, you know, as quickly as possible. In real estate, all these landlords and the tenants both want to get maintenance issues taken care of as soon as possible. And so it's not that there's like some kind of some kind of conflict, you know, people want different things. Everybody wants the same thing. Um, but yeah, the, these inefficiencies of the system is what's coming in, in the way of achieving a collective desire. What do you think is the motivation for people in the midst of these systems to do that work? Are people just going along with the system that they're placed in or is there a lot of critical thinking being done to think about better ways to accomplish these tasks? I think so. 
I think that humans have incredible natural capacity for problem solving. And so if somebody is engaged in their work to some degree, right now, there are definitely a lot of cases, um, I think we see it now, you know, people don't want to work, right, or they're not engaged in their work. Uh, but if you are engaged into your work to some extent, it just it's just part of being human, right? That you're finding ways to be more efficient, to solve the problems, to be more productive, uh, to be better, to be more creative, to to get to that ideal sooner. Naturally, people are are I think they are not necessarily controlled by the system that they are in. Uh, however, of course depending on the strength of the system, it can be hard to, uh, and definitely uh, because it's hard to kind of fight against that, there's, this is where we find the burnout, this is where we find the, the okay, you know, kind of giving up, right? Giving up, seeking change. Right, I mean, I think it's easy to say when somebody's burnt out or exhausted or just so fatigued that they can conform and accommodate to the system so well because it just takes a lot of effort and time and energy to, do anything different or look anywhere else or find a way out. So I think first and foremost, you have to take care of yourself. And that looks different for every individual, of course. And people are facing very real things out there like imposter syndrome, where you have these feelings of self-doubt or incompetence, despite the level of education that you attain, you have people feeling bad about taking PTO, but you have to be also an advocate for change. Um, and that's something that the place that I work does a really nice job with. We have somebody that is a therapist, but is also in charge of what we have called the continuous improvement initiatives and a therapist that is also in charge of strategic initiatives, right? So there are always working and picking therapist minds and we have different things going on to improve our workflows and improve our efficiencies in the rehab department that I'm really grateful for and appreciative because I don't think many have that luxury um, of being able to have therapists that hold those positions to constantly be looking at how things are operating and running aside from just the day in and day out of caring for patients. Absolutely. I was talking to my barber yesterday as I was telling him about our systems for landlords. He was telling me that he used to own 110 doors. After a while of just feeling like he's going against the grain to make this thing work, he had you know, thought here is a place where I can find financial freedom. And with that sick feeling like he has to do everything himself. And he's just like, why? Why the headache? He sold every last one. To become a barber? He was already a barber. He's just doing a barber on the side. Uh, shout out to Soulard Barber. Best barber shop in St. Louis. Fresh cut, by the way. It looks good. Thank you, bro. I'd like to go back to a point that you made that people are naturally inclined to problem solve. With that in mind, do you think that people who are in these positions on the ground doing the actual work and who have the creative capacity to solve a problem are listened to when they take their solution higher up? Well, it totally depends. Obviously, something that we've seen in the news in the last few weeks is the whole Zillow offers affair. And one of the big things there was the analysts that were tasked with kind of cross-checking the prices that the algorithm was coming up uh, for buying houses. So, so for those that are not familiar, like Zillow was continually offering more to buy people's homes for their you know, fix and flip program than really the, the market could bear. And so ended up having to take a tremendous loss on this whole program. They just shut it down. And so these analysts that were trying to cross-check, say, 
hold on, like, should we really be, you know, making these offers? They weren't listened to. Their voices were shut down. Their concerns were, you know, ignored. For the sake of, you know, fulfilling these home buying quotas, they were they were trying to bring forward the problem, right? That they saw like these discrepancies in the system, you know, the 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 whole initiative wasn't working. But by the time they were actually listened to, it was too late. Well, I, and I think being in, in healthcare and especially in larger systems, I mean, there's certainly a chain of command that you follow, and there are certainly higher ups that are dictating or trying to dictate, you know, how they want things run, of course, as there has to be, you know, some form of level of hierarchy. But at the same time, there's always being pushback and, you know, advocacy for changes that have been made. I mean, in a year that was in a pandemic, I mean, as a department, we've gone through so many changes from our productivity expectations, from working one weekend day a month to flipping to four. So basically working every other weekend, the full weekend. And you know, maybe that's what upper leadership wanted us to do and sustain even outside of the pandemic. And things weren't just realistic and things had to be changed and voices were heard. And, you know, we've come down and essentially it's compromised to two weekend days a month. And that's where things are. It can be difficult and it can take a lot of time, but it can be done. It should be done. But the path in doing so is not always clear or can be frustrating, certainly, and not always well heard. And I think people need to be careful about how they do it. But standing up for yourself and not just blindly accommodating the system is a huge issue. And I just don't think that's going to get us to more efficient processes. Do you think that there's pressure to conform? You know, I think there can be. Yeah. In a world where so much has been shown that is so fragile and so much can be taken away it's hard to get other opportunities. I think that people do feel that pressure. And I wonder if that's maybe why so many people are creating their own startups and working for themselves and creating, you know, as you mentioned in previous podcasts, a workforce for themselves where they can report to themselves and not have to conform to anybody other than them and their time and when they want to work and what they have to do. And probably those people maybe got into those industries because they were sick and tired of maybe conforming to wherever they worked and what they were doing. You know, certainly conformity has its place as well, and you have to conform or just be a a rebellion where everybody worked. But there can also be too much conformity as well. Those self-motivated individuals are are often probably the people that are leaving that world of conformity. And, you know, those could be some of your best employees. A psychological experiment was done in the early 50s that I think highlights what you said about there being too much conformity at times and knowing when to step in line and and when to think outside the box or to do something different. A very famous experiment run by a psychologist named Solomon Ash in 1951. There were two cards, like um, imagine pieces of paper. Uh, like an eight and a half by 11 or, or just something of that size. One card had three lines of obvious different lengths. So a short, a medium, and a long. And a second card had one line that was the same length as one of the lines on the first card. And uh, this solo line by itself was called the target line. In the experiment, participants would be part of a group. This group was filled with Confederates. So a Confederate is an actor who's a part of the experiment. They know what's going on and they are creating a condition for the experiment participant to make a choice and see what they do. So this group would be asked which line on the first card the target line matched up with. So which line was the same line. In some trials, the Confederates matched the target line correctly. So if the medium line was the same length as the target line, then they would say, oh yeah, it's the medium line. 
Other times, the Confederate group intentionally all reported the same wrong answer. So if it really was the medium line on the target card, they would say, oh, it's the short line and it, it matches with the short one. And all of them did that. Then it was the participants turn to respond and say which line matched the target line. And the results were very interesting. The participants ran through multiple times and 75% of participants conformed at least once. So if the target line is the, the medium length line and everybody else said it was the short line, 75% of people on their run throughs would conform. This was contrasted to a control group in which a person was in a room by themselves, no Confederates. They were shown the two cards and they were asked to match. In that time, the matching was done over 99% of the time. So while a person in one situation solo by themselves could easily find the correct match, something was going on when there was a group consensus to the contrary, even though it was clearly the wrong answer. So during their debrief, when participants were asked about what was going through their minds during the experiment, most participants said they didn't believe their conforming answers. But most participants did so because of fear of ridicule or being seen as peculiar. Upon further investigation, the two main reasons for conforming were, one, wanting to fit in, which was termed normative influence, and two, believing that the group was somehow better informed, which is informational influence. Those results were published and got a lot of attention, but researchers said that there were some problems with the first experiment. So Ash ran further trials. He went on to test group size. So with one Confederate giving a wrong answer, only 3% of people conformed. When three Confederates gave the wrong answer, 33% of the time people would conform and greater than five, there was no discernible effect. So as long as there are three people giving a dissenting opinion, even if it's wrong, one third of the time people were going to conform. Another variation was to have an ally or somebody who broke away from the group before the participant even had a chance to answer. And having one ally was found to reduce conforming by 80%. So that 32% went down to five just by having one person willing to stand up, go against the group and give the right answer. Another condition that was tested was how obvious the lines matched up. The first time, it was pretty obvious between the lengths. When they tested this, sometimes they chose lines that were very similar in length to make it a little bit more difficult. And they found that when the choice was less obvious, there was greater conformity. These were done in the 50s, but that's some pretty explosive psychology right there, wouldn't you say? Huge. Huge. And, and it's, uh, it's enlightening and illuminating, I think, for a lot of things that we've been talking about and seeing. And it definitely is making me think that if we know we have this capacity for conformity, you want to be intentional to lean the other way. Like push down that that lane that people aren't in like a little bit more to back to the zipper merge um, because that's the only way you know go a little bit against the the grain to keep from falling into this trap of conformity, this trap of over accommodation. Well, it wouldn't be good to always go the other way. There are times when the group is right, and I, I think the majority of the time the group is right. So we wouldn't always want to be the sore thumb or do things opposite just because. Correct, correct. No, definitely. I, and I agree with you on that. Um, I think what I mean is just sort of being aware of that capacity 
and not to like like you said not to just have a mentality of contrarianism but to be aware and have uh, a little bit more self-assurance right these people who were conforming they're saying like i did not believe my answer and if we don't believe our answer right it is a problem. Like like you said, like there are cases where you're wrong, the group is right, but you have to do what you believe. And if you make a mistake, okay, right? There's other opportunities. Life isn't over. I want to make sure that we're clear on that point that you're not saying like, you know, just go against the grain for the sake of being like a rebel, but standing up for what you believe in sure, right? 100%. Well, Dan, you're my leader and my mentor. So Nave, it's okay. I'm going to ask you a quick question. Please. This is a discussion. Why the conformity? You know, what is the foundation or the basis for why people tend to want to or feel the need to conform, even if they know they might be wrong in their answer? I think we actually talked about this last week. I think it's overall a lack of true humility in our society. Humility, again, in the sense of not thinking that we're better than we are and not thinking that we're worse than we are. We sort of have this on one side, low self-esteem, and on the other side, you know, extreme arrogance. And these are both false manifestations of this lack of true humility. See, I think of two things there, then I think of the, offer your point that one, we want to be comfortable. People don't like to be outside of their comfort zone, right? So sometimes conforming is comfortable. Right. Um, People also don't want to be judged, right? So sometimes if you conform, or you go step outside of the conformity, and you're wrong, Nobody wants to feel what that feels like, especially that judgment of being wrong or being seen as incompetent. And then three, that imposter syndrome I talked about is, mm-hmm. you know, in healthcare and probably many other professions. I mean, this is sure. a, all over the startup world. You a, see it. A lot of education that we go through. And the last thing we want to be seen as seen as being wrong. So that sense of imposter syndrome, creating that feeling of self-doubt or incompetence, we hold ourselves to higher standards. And sometimes it's safer to to conform rather than be wrong with the standards that we have placed on ourselves. So that's what makes me think when you mentioned your point. Well, then how do we step out of our comfort zone? Because to me, it seems like if there is something out in the world that we see is wrong and we have the opportunity to go against the grain and stand up and say something, first of all, we need to think critically in order to know that there's something different or there's a better way, but also we need to have the courage to do so. That seems like it could be a tall order sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you kind of asked the question, how do we get out of the comfort zone? I think the answer is slowly, you know, with, with like small steps. Pete was talking about this a couple of weeks ago in, in the sense of he thought it was everybody else, you know, that was creating these expectations for him, but he had to be working all the time, you know, be on the phone at, you know, 4 a.m., you know, with the Philippines or, you know, be on the phone at 1 a.m. with the Middle East or, or, or whatever. And he started to realize like, no, no, this was just me. And so the way you get out of that is with baby steps. You test the assumption. Were you right? Were you wrong? So very slowly. You know, I think you also need an ally. And that's what Dan has been for me over these years, other than just a great friend. Um, But he's been an ally and somebody that's always been in my corner that I can go to. Having that person, whether it's in your social support network or at work, that you can bounce these ideas off, maybe gain confidence in an ally or somebody else outside of this conforming pattern would be huge. So how somebody can go about doing that and having an ally on their side or a strong network of uh, social support could help take those steps that you mentioned, Dan, as well. You know, I, I think the ability to dialogue is also very important. 
to be able to go forth and ask a question and really seek truth. Mm. Like you said, with humility, being able to, to assert your position, but also being willing to hear somebody else out and to adapt. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Kind of this, this, this recognition that you know, life is this constant journey. We're all dynamic. Everybody's trying to problem solve, right, to make the best life for themselves. And realizing this is going to be, you know, kind of a, a never-ending battle, so to speak, to to find uh, to find the harmony. Well said, Dan. Well said. I know that you guys need to head down to the party and celebrate the married couple. My best to them. I think this is a great place to stop because it ties directly into our next show, which is going to be why it's important to care for yourself and how to know what you really need. Nick, it was great having you on the show. Thank you so much. Nate, thank you so much for having me. It's truly been an honor. Um, we're the, we're the, we're and, the ones that are honored. Really. <laughs> and, and to Dan for guiding me over all these years and okay. um, for making this opportunity possible. And I just want to say, hey, mom, hey, dad, look, we finally made it here in life. And I'm just excited to get down to the party and enjoy some of my wife's homemade fireball whiskey meatballs. Wow. Um, Ooh, that sounds incredible see some great friends that we haven't seen in a long time. So thanks again, Nate. I really appreciate this. Well, yeah, again, thank you so much. It was really great talking to you and getting to know you. And maybe sometime we'll have you on in the studio and bring some of those meatballs too while you're at it. <laughs> I'm sure Megan would be honored to do so. And any excuse to get a step away from work and come out to St. Louis to see you guys would be our, our pleasure. And Nick, we'll be sure to send you a doorward thinking t-shirt or mug of your choice. You just let us know, okay? That would be terrific. I'd say one time in the in the dorms or the apartments we were living in, I used one of Dan's mugs or soup bowls for coffee. And I don't think he's ever forgiven me for having the smell of coffee in the mug. So I might need a, a mug of my own, I suppose. Smell or stench? Well, I call it a pleasing aroma. You may refer to it as stench. You are the leader, but I think in maybe this one area. Does coffee by any other name smell as pungent? <laughs> oh dear. The ally. Ally. Oh dear. This is worse than the sweet potato, regular mashed potato discussion for Thanksgiving. <laughs> to make sure you catch every new episode of our podcast, please like, share, and subscribe to Doorward Thinking on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you want to join in on this great conversation, Please send your contributions or ideas to podcast at doorward.com, and we may even share them in a future episode. We read and respond to every comment and question. If you can't wait, there's more great Doorward Thinking content from the whole team on the Doorward Thinking blog at doorward.com slash doorwardthinking. And if you or someone you know is interested in real estate and Doorward, please visit or recommend doorward.com and check us out on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Until next time, I'm your host, Nate LeBlanc, encouraging you to hold fast when you know the truth and to get back to living.